right, uh, welcome everybody back to episode number two of the Hockey Toolkit. I am Trevor DiCarlo. I'm Andrew Trimble. And uh, we are the uh, both the co-hosts here of the, the Hockey Toolkit. <laughs> I guess there's really no better way to put that. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, so today we got a pretty cool, cool episode. Uh, it's going to be focused a lot on uh, team culture. Uh, but before we even get into that, just kind of figured just shoot the breeze and see how things are going and both of our hockey lives and in general. So uh, what's going on on the East coast? Yeah. Uh, you know, the Wolves had a good weekend last weekend. And then we had a setback on like Tuesday. We played a, a program down in the, on the seacoast. They came up to Laconia and they beat both of our EHLP team. And then our EHL team, which uh, our EHL team has been in first place the whole year. So uh, that was a little bit of setback. So we had to have kind of some tough practices here, but uh, you know, it is, it's gearing up for a big, big weekend this weekend and uh firing on all cylinders but it's good to have those setbacks early like you know you gotta you know we'll talk about that later with team culture but if you don't have those setbacks and you got to realize you know your limitations and go through some adversity then you're kind of setting yourself up for failure in the long run so uh yeah i'm excited about it and then our our younger teams are you know are doing well they got a bunch of games coming up here and i don't know how they they do it in the midwest it's probably a little bit different but here on the east coast they'll have their playoffs uh, for national bound teams in November. So we got like two weeks before our teams, um, compete for the national tournament. And then they'll, they'll pause for a little bit. And then, uh, kids, a lot of kids play high school. Then they'll come back in the, uh, in the spring. Is that what they do out, out in Chicago? No, it's like completely opposite where we just play basically our high school and our, um, travel seasons. They're just, they run at the same time. So we got kids that have to choose between like one or the other, which, I think it's asinine. Um, I think that there's enough quality um, high school player. I mean, players out here that we could go to that type of thing, but we would have to restructure the entire like okay boundaries. And then um, it's just unfortunately I have to say, you know, Chicago. It's a uh, there's a lot of money involved, and now all of a sudden you're going to be taking away ice time from clubs, um, from those coaches. So. I honestly would love to see it going to that type of model as well as like what Minnesota does, but no, we don't have anything remotely like that. I mean, basically it's play for one or the other. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, I think they do it a little bit here on the East coast, specifically in New Hampshire, because there's so much prep school hockey. So, you know, a couple of programs are able to capture like all the top prep players and put them on a team that may only may not have any practices, but they're top end kids. Yeah, and then they, they compete in the, in the playoffs and they get a national bound uh, opportunity, but I liked it. You know, when I grew up in New Jersey, you know, people played high school and they played their travel programs and you made it work. And, you know, I mean, we had a kid, uh, in the EHL a couple of years ago, Matt Brown, uh, he committed out of our league. He, he was a good player at UMass Lowell. I think he transferred his junior year. Um, and he played for the Rockets when they were in our league. He made his division one commitment in our league, but then he also was like tearing it up for Tenafly high school. Like scoring like three <laughs> points a game and make, help them get to the national turn or like get to the the, uh, the state finals and all sorts of stuff and you get the best of both worlds that way you make it work right yeah it's you know again it's it's a tough situation especially I mean myself I'm co- so I'm coaching obviously a 16U team um you know and I do have a player that is playing for what is basically a combined high school um. So they play basically it's like three local high schools within the same district. They combine to have a team and we've got a whole bunch of those out here in Illinois. Um, but long story short, 
you know, it's he's also playing for me. So basically the deal was like, look, anytime we've got practices or, or games, you know, we come first and then your high school team, you know, would be coming second. So, which is, you know, probably backwards for some people or whatever, but it was more or less, okay, like you've made the commitment here. And again, that's, and he's, it's been totally fine. Everything's worked out well, but yeah, I mean, I knew kids that same thing. We, you go play high school, you know, or you double roster, you know, I'm and some clubs they are fine with it. Other clubs, they're not like, yeah. Nope, you got to pick one or the other, which again, it's got its pros and cons as a coach. I mean, yeah, there's the single most asinine rule in all of hockey history. You ready for it? Um, I'm ready. I can think of a ton of them, but I, I'll, I'd love to hear your This take. is a good one. I mean, there, there's a bunch of Kimarashi with USA Hockey and power plays and all sorts of stuff. But get this one. So if you're a New Hampshire high school hockey player and you miss a practice for any other activity non-related to that high school sport, you are suspended from team activities for two weeks. So let's say you are um, – Let's say you miss a practice and you attend. Let's say you're rostered on the New England Wolves and on your high school team. And you mm. have an opportunity to go play in a beast tournament, which has 100 scouts there. It's an awesome opportunity. And you have a captain's practice that same day. You have to attend that captain's practice or that, that practice for your high school. Otherwise, you will miss two weeks of games and activities going forward. So it punishes the kid for opportunities presented to him. And uh, what it does, it ends up turning away kids because kids are like, well, that's a stupid rule. So uh, I'm just going to have to make a decision here. And there's no way I'm going to, if I'm a good player, there's no way I'm going to miss out on travel hockey or like really high end stuff to go play right. with, with a high school hockey program at whatever level it may be. No, that we don't have anything like that out here right now. <laughs> that's for sure. I mean, more or less, it's we're banging down the doors and trying to get in the kids uh, play out, you know, just like, hey, just come play for us. Fine. We'll let you double roster. <laughs> with the way it's going actually this year it's it's not weird but i guess it's it's interesting with how many kids i've found this year have actually gone to high school hockey especially these combined teams whereas before you know and again there's more popping up so i can see why that's happening um but previously i mean it was you know i went to bartlett high school which again it's a good size school but we've got um when i was there i'm gonna get so 2004 uh, we had a JV and a varsity team. Now they can't; they don't even have enough kids to put together one single team. So now they're combined with those, you know, with three other schools. But there's this huge shift now of kids going from playing club to going and playing in those high school games. And again, you don't go to school with all those kids. Yeah. So it's not like you're playing for your individual school. And especially out here in Illinois, unless you're playing for like, you know, the new Triers or any of those like, you know, you know, Glenbrook North or any of those big time schools up on the North Shore or a private school like Viator or uh, Loyola. Like, it's not a school sponsored sport. Yeah. Half the time, the school doesn't even like want to have anything to do with it outside of like, okay, yeah, sure, you can use our name. Even the ones that are just single, uh, just single teams because, or single school teams because there's all that insurance. And, yep. you know, the equipment and all this stuff. And it's like, well, we got our own equipment. Just like, but again, it's why Illinois hockey is just, it's all over the place. Uh, it's sadly, but. Uh, yeah, there's only, no, there's only one state that really does it right, you know, and you right. know, every, every other, uh, every other state just tries to pretend like they have all the right ideas, but they always make mistakes, you know, and 
you know, Absolutely. Minnesota is, is this, is the model, you know? Yeah. Though the cost of ice out in Minnesota is so nice though. <laughs> what, I mean, I, people always say that, but what is actually the cost of like an, like a sheet of ice in Minnesota? Oh God. I mean, I've heard anything between two to 300 bucks maybe. And again, what, I mean, what's it in, uh, in Illinois? Depends on where you are, really. I mean, it could be anywhere between four to five, maybe even six. Wow. Again, depending on who owns the rink, it's park district rinks. You're usually able to get a little bit less, but we've also got a whole bunch of you know ones that are owned by all these companies that are now coming out and buying them. Um, and they're coming in, they're fixing the rinks, and then they jack the price up and. Like, oh, well, we fixed some of the things in the rink. Well, it's like, oh, great, cool. We, well, the sink now works great, but uh, why does my, uh, you know, what it didn't cost you, you know, $1,000, you know, just to fix that. And then you divide it amongst the team. So there's an old, I mean, no, I'm not a rink owner, but there's an old saying among rink owners that you don't turn a profit until you're the third owner. You know, the first, <laughs> the first owner like builds all, invests all the money, has all these dreams, but he doesn't have the program. So he has to go bankrupt or sell. And then the next guy comes in and he builds all the programs, but he's in over his head. So he has to sell. Then the yeah. third guy has all the stuff in place and he makes it work. So uh, the rink business is a tough business for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I Again, so, well, I guess if I'll have to start looking out, if I could be the third owner, uh, maybe I'll have to jump on that. But I'm the, yeah, third, no. I'm the, I'm the first owner of a backyard ice rink. I don't know if people, <laughs> my backyard ice rink is pure profit, baby. Oh, man. Yeah, but you got to do all the work. <laughs> hey, you haven't been around my kids, man, and my, and my wife. I'm, I'm out there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing they're not in the room when you said that. Uh, yeah. Well, it's better than being the second owner of your own rink. Then you got, you got issues. but yeah, For sure. But, yeah, so that's uh, – all right. So that sounds like you guys got a good weekend then ahead of you. What, uh, are you going to be on the bench running those games? or? Uh, this weekend I'm actually um, – um, my my son's got a game that overlaps, so I'm, I'm not going to be down for any of the games this weekend. We just have one EHL game, and then our 16th have a game, and our 18th have a game on Sunday. So uh, it's a little bit lighter this weekend. Our EHLP team did a bunch of like volunteer activities. Uh, we got a bunch of like stuff that happens in the fall here in Laconia. Um, so we did a bunch of that stuff today, and uh, I had a clinic today uh, for on a shooting clinic. It was it was fun. It was a good good day. No no complaints. Good turnout. Yeah, always always. You know, you get you get twenty twenty five kids. It's a great experience. Oh, absolutely! That's awesome. Sounds very good. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess kind of. I know my segue skills need to be a little worked <laughs> on here, but uh, so yeah, we uh, kind of see what's going on right now around the uh, world of hockey, and I know what you and I have been going back and forth on, and are talking about as well as uh, you know on Twitter, and we've been looking at and reading about but uh that would be the uh the Wooster Oilers there's a big uproar on that one you want to give your take or what you know about it and yeah I mean I don't know a lot of the the nuts and bolts of that specific situation uh you see a lot of you know inexperienced owners uh who don't have established reputations get into the junior hockey world because they think Oh, well, you know, the kids sign up and they try out and they pay whatever amount of money. It's an easy business. But the reality is you got to work. You got to go out and recruit. And you got to put out a product that people want to buy. And then you got to get your kids to school. So that shows like you got to have kids come in the door. They want to be part of the experience. And then you got to show that kind of matriculation. And Worcester has been around for a long time. I've heard the name. Uh, we not, may not play in the same league, but 
it's an established brand. So you don't see that every day where an established franchise goes under. Uh, right. And more often than not, it's because maybe there was a change in coaching. Maybe there's a change in recruiting where they have a different person who's in charge of recruiting. But if you have low roster numbers at this point in the year, it's a decision that has to be made. And, and you have to look at if we, if we have 15 roster guys now and I get one or two players suspended, and then I start forfeiting games. What is that? What is the league policy on forfeiting games? And am I going to lose my franchise? Are we going to be able to field a team next year? And then you have to make a decision as an organization. And I think that's probably what the situation they were put in. That, that'd be my best guess. I know that they had low roster numbers. So, right. um, you, know, you know, one thing leads into the other. Right. I know I got yelled at by who I'm assuming is someone higher up in their front office. Uh, you know, about not knowing the whole situation, which is the truth. I mean, I none of us know the full situation, and allegedly we won't know the full situation until, you know, the owner has gone on Instagram and on Facebook and recorded videos and kind of put it out there to the fans, which is, which is great. I mean, at least he's active and he's trying to let everybody know that he's trying to find the guy's homes, which, again, is someone who, you know, you and I, you've seen him more than I have, but... Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting junior clubs out there. I'll just say shady ones that <laughs> wouldn't sure. be doing that, you know? And so I do commend and I do respect the fact that he's trying to find his, you know, the players that are there that who wanted to stay according to him, but can't because the team is now allegedly folded due to the league's ruling. You know, at least he's looking to get those kids a new home within the league. Yeah, put on waivers or wherever else. I haven't seen a whole lot of movement because honestly, I haven't taken too much of a look into it. But I do respect that. So I. That being said, again, we don't have all the information, but to me, it feels like the USPHL. Now, granted, they've got so many teams, um, and that's probably for another episode. But <laughs> I don't. It's very difficult for me to think that a league like that would just fold a team with kids on it just to fold it. Like there's like some like conspiracy or like under, you know, some type of like deep dive secrets or into it. I mean, to me, what it sounds like is I mean, everything we've said is I went back, I looked at the game sheets when this first came up and I saw that I think they had one game of, and again, I'm, I'm sure if I get the numbers wrong, someone's going to call me out on it, but I don't care anymore. <laughs> you know, been called worse um they had low numbers like below 15 players yeah and then they and that was with i guess a couple injuries um and then they also ran into uh so the injury bug i think a couple kids got sick and then you're talking about suspensions as well and i guess in the last game they played there was like i don't know three four game misconducts handed out so my feeling is that and you know, kind of you've alluded to it is if you don't have a certain number by a certain point, you've got to do what's best for the players. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying Wooster didn't do that for the players. Again, don't know the full story. Don't sue me. Um <laughs> you know. Uh but basically at the end of the day, and I've seen it with other clubs. I remember there was I forgot who the NA three team was when I was writing for what was the junior hockey podcast, but now is the hockey focus. Was that I think I forgot who it was it? Any three team they had 
almost like over like 35 kids coming through. They had a core group of like 11 kids. Yeah. And then they cycled through another like 20 kids and just, it was like, Hey, do you want to play this weekend? Yes. Um, and I was just astounded by that. Like, how can you, first of all, not even, I mean, you're okay. You're getting the numbers for the safety, but financially, how do you support What do you tell the kids? Like, okay, we'll sign you for this weekend and you pay like 50 bucks for the weekend. Like, I mean, how do you financially even survive that as an owner? Because again, I mean, to me, a junior club, I mean, if you're an owner of a junior club and you're running it as a business, I get it, but you can't be making money that way. And I, and surprisingly, the club that I'm talking about uh, is still actually active and going. So I don't know how they did it, but probably someone else bought them out. But well, that's what you hope for. You know, you hope for like in a situation like that, that you can kind of string it together for a year and then maybe you can hire some different personnel and they can, uh, you know, revamp it and bring in the right guys. I know the the biggest thing I think, you know, you said like the owner, he may not want to fold the franchise, but he's doing right for the kids, giving those kids right. an opportunity to play elsewhere. Uh, and, you know, the reason you play junior hockey, it's a bridge between one place and another place. The reason you're playing junior hockey is because you want to play in college hockey. And if you're not providing that opportunity where they can play in competitive games, then you're not, you're not doing your job. And no college coach at any level wants to see a game, a 10 nothing game. They want to see competitive yeah. games, 5-4, 4-3, 6-5, whatever it may be. And That's if probably a key part that I left out there, too. They it, they were getting blown out. Yeah, so yeah. like if the kids are you're, – you're putting out 15 players and they're getting blown out, you're not doing right for the kids. And, and so that coach yeah, – that ownership made a decision probably to, to, to you know let those kids go. Uh, to find greener pastures. And that's the absolute right thing to do in that scenario because they're not going to get to college at any level, no matter if they're the best player on that team and they score two goals a game. The, the, the college coach is going to be like, well, your team lost every game and you got those on two shorthanded breakaways. Like that's not, <laughs> right, a, that's, right. that's not a recipe for success at the next level. So, um, you know, we wish them well. I mean, there's nobody wants to go through that. It's basically like witnessing the meltdown of a, of a, of, of a business that you've invested in. Nobody wants anybody and nobody wants the kids to have a bad situation. But the reality is, is that, you know, you can see a folding like in July. You really can. You yeah. gotta, you gotta have the roster numbers if you want to start, if you want to have the team be successful. So when I was scouting for uh, the Rochester Ice Hawks, we were, um, we were borderline on that number at one point, And I remember just, how like just looking at all the transactions like from the na and all these kids that you know were getting released or whatever i'm like okay let me just try and find a way to contact them and just so we can get our own and because again their numbers went down now i don't believe they ever went below like an 18 skater two goalie roster but again i can't imagine i mean i few 16 and again we're not even playing or 16 you we're not even playing at that high of a level right now where you know, when I dip down to 14 guys, I'm like, Ugh, this is not, uh, you know, it's not fun. And we're, we're, it's fast. We're going. Guys are getting injured. So I can't imagine playing with less than, you know, being sub 15 players, which it looks like according to these game sheets that we pull, I pulled up, they were at, they were almost at 10 skaters, I think, at one point. Yeah. So I think the league stepped in for the safety of the players. Now, again, as you said, Wooster's been around for a while. Um, so I, I would hope that if the club and the coaches or the, the owners are able to show and prove like, hey, you know what? We are able to, okay, this would happen this year, but 
I don't want to fold my I don't want to fold my franchise. I want us to be able to come back in 20, you know, 2023, 2024 season. What do we have to do to prove that? I mean, I, I don't know how that works. Do you have any, you know, have you yes. ever seen so that happen? I have and and you know, there's certain situations where you can lose a franchise as part of a league's bylaws. Uh, you know, if you let's say you dress a 25-year-old, you know, you put <laughs> You know, you put him in your lineup. That's yeah. you know, dressing an ineligible and an illegal player. Uh, you could potentially lose your franchise on that. There also is in some leagues, and I know from personal experience, not um, that if you if you have a certain amount of forfeits in a given year, you know, because you have to secure the ice, you got to secure the officials. Some teams take a bus, so the financial impact of those forfeits is not just you saying, "Oh, we can't play today." The other team is significantly impacted. So if you have a certain amount of forfeits in a given year, you lose your franchise, and that's an automatic – that's a rule within a, a league's bylaws. So he could have found himself in a situation like that where if he folds now uh, and does it with, in agreement with league officials, he potentially saves his franchise. And that's just – you know, I'm, we're spitballing there a little bit, but right. that could be a scenario. And again, look, we don't want to – again, they've been around for so long. I don't want to see them – if they've been around that long, and if, again, if it's been just a bad off season or just didn't work out, I mean, it happens for a lot of programs. Um, you know, unfortunately, there's so many teams popping up left and right. The the whole pond is just not as big as it once was now. Um, so you're everybody's going after the not even the big fish, even the small tiny fish. So again, I uh, we've reached out. I feel like I've discussed. Uh, I don't know who specifically, but I feel like there's somebody up on the higher ups. Um, like I said, once they, uh, get things figured out, they'd be more than happy to kind of talk a little bit further. So I've given us, uh, I know a few of the other, uh, platform shows here on uh, the hockey focus. So, uh, we'll see, we'll see, uh, more, very interested to see what happens. And, um, uh, again, we'll go from there, but, uh, absolutely. And I think that brings us to a good, a good part with our, with our team culture, you know, and hitting that segue where we can talk a little bit about. Team culture. You're so much I, better than I am. At that. <laughs> I, well, I, I have a I have a kind of a good story here. So you're a talent. You're the talent. Ah, uh, get out of here. <laughs> I could I couldn't cross two wires to make a podcast work. That's um, all right. <laughs> so the um, Laconia Junior Hockey, uh, Laconia mm-hmm. Leafs were a franchise that existed in Laconia for a number of years. Uh, they had some initial early on success in the late '90s, and then they became a really tough place for to recruit and kids to play and. Uh, the year before I moved up here, they were uh, they had a junior team in the old Atlantic Junior Hockey League that was two and forty, terrible, terrible season. Uh, and then you know things changed, and I'm not gonna say it's you know whatever things changed, and, and I came into a position where I could recruit under the New England Wolves. And our first year of the shoot, we had 20 wins and we made the playoffs and did really well. But a couple years down the road in 2018-19, which was our, our the year we won the EHL Premier Championship. I would, you know, there was a lot of culture, positive culture that I learned out of that season. And we played a back-to-back home and home against the Boston Junior Rangers in mid-November. And we lost in the, we were winning in the third period on Saturday night, four to two. And we had uh, kind of a meltdown in the third period. And we ended up losing five to four. And uh, there was a defensive pairing that was like minus two. And one of the kids after the game was like just, you know, was, was really decimated his teammates. And it was all on, a lot of it was on him. He, he was like minus two in that period. So I said, well, 
I, I kind of lost it. And uh, I said, we're going to find out what, <laughs> who are the, who really wants to be part of this team. And I think I dressed in terms of dressing players. I think I dressed 14 the next night and sat like four kids up in the stands. Okay. You know, I think I was like bare minimum of the league rule of what you can dress because I wanted to figure out who wants to be part of this team and who's going to meet, you know, be part of the positive culture. And the next night we played them in their barn and we won six to five in overtime. And I, mm. and then, you know, that, that team went on to win the championship further down the road, but we found out what the core of that team was, who wanted to be there, who believed in that team. And uh, it really says everything about the culture of those, that group of players. And that's, I think that's a good place to start our culture discussion. For sure. No, I mean, that's, uh, well, that's a, that's a good story. Um, though if you were in the USPHL, they might fold your team. For their own <laughs> yeah. I mean, never had that opportunity, you know? <laughs> right. But I mean, we hear culture all the time. Like, you know, everybody's, it's kind of like a buzzword these days, but, uh, so, I mean, for you, how do you build your culture that you want with the wolves? I think it's a, it's a, it's a shared common, uh, belief and a standard and expectation for your organization. That's the culture of your organization. Starts with standards and expectations. What, what, what kind of athletes do you want representing your, your uniform, representing your town, representing your team? And it's holding to those kids, holding that, that level of accountability at a high level. Um, you know, we do a lot of different things to create a culture. I think we do a lot in terms of our development model. Uh, our kids work really hard when they're here. They're on the ice twice a day. We have workouts every single day. We do video every single day. And we invest in our kids. And that says a lot about what we want to put out, put into our kids, and that we want we want that paid back to us in terms of their effort on the ice. Uh, and then we also have things like the jacket and the cha- or the chain in a given year. Like every single game, if, if a win or a loss, we hand out this jacket and they, they put that jacket on for a guy, a kid who's gone above and beyond uh, over the course of the game, who's, who's had exemplary play. Um, we do a lot of stuff with our community service. You know, we don't yeah, just I know do you stuff. just mentioned that too. Yeah. So I was going to. Yeah. So it's not just how back. you conduct yourself on the ice, but it's how you're represented in the community. And all that stuff kind of ties into that standard of excellence and, and having that high level of, uh, of, of belief in your athletes. I agree with a lot of that. You know, the, especially, you know, at the younger side, where for me, I mean, last two years, even well, two years for sure, it's been a different program, different kids. So it's how do I go from one program to the, the next and figure out, okay, this is what, you know, this this is how I want to run things. And again, you can't always like, you can't always just try and cookie cutter everybody into it. Like, like oh, this is how it's going to be. Like things change, players change, staffs change, the overall society, you know, the society's climate. That changes. So it's more or less for me, it's, as you said, and I agree 100%, it's the structure you kind of put in, the discipline, you know, the expectations, like this is what we're here to do. And you bring up that story of, you know, playing 14 guys, you know, finding out who really is here to play and be a part of the program the way you want them to be. And who's just, you know, here for themselves. And, you know, and again, all players are always there at the end of the day for themselves, but they're also, you want them to be part of that team too. And for me, yeah, I mean, I think it starts on day one, just the very first. And again, I, we're talking about youth, but even when I was helping out with the colleges, it was team meeting right off the bat, you know, before you even step on the ice, like, hey, here's the expectations. I've got them written down. You're going to sign this saying that, hey, I, you know, I saw this and granted, it's probably not legal binding to have like a 
14 year old sign it but it's more or less like acknowledging hey take this home read it over with your parents you know who are also in the same meeting and then just say hey like okay this is what i'm expecting of you i'm expecting you to show up to the rink at this amount of time i'm expecting you when you're here that we're focusing on hockey we're we're giving it our all you know if you want to goof around we can do that after you can do that away from the rink you know whatever i mean you gotta let kids be kids but it's also this is how we want to conduct ourselves and i remember uh, God, it was probably last season. I forgot who the goalie was. He's on X-Pro. Maybe it was McKenna or something. Made a comment about players wearing suits. You know, kids wearing suits to the rink. Okay. Now, I agree. A 10-year-old should not have to wear a suit. If, you know, your coach saying, yeah, my kids all got to wear suits. Like, you're nuts. Okay. That said, this year, my team dress code for 16U was, hey, guys, just wear, you know, a nice pair of Dockers, khaki pants, and a polo shirt. That's it. I got kids dressing up in the suits on their own. And again, I, I'm not asking them to. I don't, I mean, I think it's great. I think it's obviously you're spending extra time getting all the extra clothing on. But like, that was the culture they wanted to bring into it. That was how they wanted to do those things. So I think that where I'm kind of going with this all is that there are things like over the top trying to create a culture. But I think you got to play it to the crowd that's in front of you. You got to play it to the the team that you have. So roundabout way, yeah, we circle back. That's kind of where I was going with that one. Yeah, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head, though. Like, um, you know, I, you know, we do code meetings at the beginning of the year. I, I do code meetings at the beginning of the year, and, but I want to get input from the kids. My rules are pretty basic. You got to show up on time. You got to be respectful for all the people around you on and off the ice, and then you got to work hard. Those are like the basic three rules that I have, <laughs> and that's it, that's, right? That's uh, that's wow. But like, I, I mean, know what I got. But I mean, like if you if you're showing up late, I mean, there's a there's a penalty for that. If you're if you're doing things off the ice you shouldn't be doing, there's a penalty for that. If you're you know if you're if you're not giving your best effort, somebody's going to take your job. So those are kind of the basic three rules we have. But when we when we kind of you know curate that culture, uh, we have those small meetings at the at the beginning of the year, and like we define what we want to wear, wh- how we want to look off the ice, and and the kids. If the kid you're getting that e- feedback and that information from the kids. And they're saying, oh, we want to look this way? Well, now they're saying it on their own. So they're making the rule, not me. Right, right. But, and again, that's great that they're able, what I really liked about them was they're building their own culture within the culture of the team, which is like, I know it's like going into the multiverse here, but it's like you've (laughs) got your own kids that are like, this is what they want. So, and they hold them. So again, they're not forcing their teammates, all their teammates wear, you know, suits or ties or whatever just a certain group and maybe they just like to look fancy, which is fine with me. Hey, Mark Messi, I said, you look good, you play good. So, uh, but, um, it works for me. So do you, uh, I guess we could probably keep that anonymous then, but, uh, any of, uh, examples of, uh, any probably, let's say clubs that you've seen that have bad, uh, cultures that have, you know, just ended up in disaster. Um, you know, Generally, you know, it comes down from the top. If you can see that, you know, the, the coach, uh, maybe conducts himself in a, in a way on the bench that, you know, if he's screaming at the officials the whole game, you know, what is, what is, what kind of messages is he relaying to his kid? You know, he's relaying that, you know, maybe he's not prepared for games and he's taking it all out on somebody else and he's placing blame on somebody else. Um, you know, you can see, you can see it when you get off the bus sometimes that negative culture, you know, what, what those coaches are investing in their kids. And if you're investing in your kids, they, they pick it up. These kids aren't dumb. They're smart. They know if you're like, 
really going the extra mile for them. So I think that, you know, you show that you want to do the little things right for them. They pay it back. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I mean, I know I've been like my own self playing bad cultures. I mean, I've had, you know, coaches that just never put in like a, Hey, here's the team rules or, you know, this, this, or that, which I think there was no accountability was the big thing that, which you could, again, see from off the ice, there's no accountability. Well, there's not going to be any on the ice. Um, you know, maybe just some high school year or two or high school, but I mean, outside of that, I can't think, I mean, again, hearing the horror stories, yeah, of youth sports, um, you do hear about the, you know, the, the clubs or the coaches that just bring a terrible culture. And that's why, you know, they're suitcase coaches. They jump yeah. from, you know, club to club. And that's why I'm like, all right, I've, I've jumped between two clubs within or three clubs in the last three years. One of them was cause I moved on from one of them was too far away. I got fast and the furious outside here. Probably. <laughs> and then the other one, I was just like, all right, it's a little bit closer. So, but I mean, I don't want to move after this one. I want to be somewhere. So I don't get that label as a suitcase coach. Cause yeah. that's a red flag to me. And that, well- you know, we've I've seen you know you mentioned that like but like I said that it comes up sometimes from the top on down and there's there's coaches I've you know known from afar that we're doing all the wrong things off the ice and it doesn't like if you're doing all the wrong things off the ice and you're not you know cultivating a, a you know a positive environment or making mistakes off the ice that could get you in trouble with the law like you're not <laughs> like you're not really you're not going to be successful. Um, one thing I've encountered though in the last two years. You know, prior to uh, prior to this year, when I'm mostly assisting the junior teams, is you know the negative impact that parents can have oftentimes in culture. They can really undermine what the coach is attempting to do, um, yep. and that's disappointing. You don't, you know, I never saw that when I was a kid. You know, like when I was a kid, my dad took me to the rink and then he would go do errands. He just dropped me off, or <laughs> you know, like it wasn't like he stayed around and watched every practice. You know, the like greatest was, hockey lockout, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now you have parents who watch you on Live Barn, and if you're not wearing a helmet the whole practice, they'll, you know, oh, boy, mail yeah. that into USA Hockey USA, and get you suspended yeah. for 30 days, or like they'll, you know, I had a parent one time. Who, I mean, there was one point in the season when he was emailing me three or four times a day about updating the updating the, the stats on elite prospects. And it's like, I have other things to worry about. If I'm worried about just this one thing, like, and it's about your kid, there's 20 right. kids in this room. Like there's right. 20 kids I'm trying to get to the next level. Like I can't just be focused on the elite prospects update, you know? <laughs> so and there, there's things like that where the, like, where, like coaches, where the parents, they undermine what you're trying to create. Right. No, and I, again, so on the youth side, obviously the parents are not, they're not at the juniors, but obviously more involved. Like they're the ones who are dropping off literally every day. The ones who are telling you if little Billy's sick and stuff like that. And over <laughs> the last 10 years, I won't use any of the last recent years, clubs that I've been with, not to piss anybody off. Um, But yeah, I've had situations where, you know, for me, it's, I try to do at least two, if not three max parent meetings throughout the season, just kind of updates. So they, and again, I've got a pretty good open door policy, I feel. And I think that's a huge component of building that culture with the parents is that communication. Like, it's great that you had that parent willing to come and like, it, well, they thought they should be able to go to you about the stats. Well, it's just <laughs> asinine, but at least you're like, Hey, like, I don't have time for this right now. Like I've got other kids and I'm sure you did it in a much more professional manner than just like, Hey, dude, buzz off. But I guess the thing is like, 
creating that atmosphere of like, hey, I've got an open door pretty much outside. Unless you're going to rip my head off, then if you are, wait the 24 hours. If you're not, then uh, yeah, no problem talking to you after a game. And if you know, I start feeling like things are starting to kind of flare up a little bit, I'll say, hey, you know what? Let's just talk about this tomorrow. Uh, I've used that a couple times. It's worked. A couple times it hasn't and just escalated things. So it's like, great. All right. Well, I guess I was throw that rule out the window, but I use, so I do the team, do the team meetings. Um, and I, I open it up. I say, Hey, this is what we're working on. This is what we're doing. This is what we're trying. Our focus has been, you know, and then I give them, you know, like let the team manager say whatever they want, you know, like, Hey, we need more money in the slush fund or we're going out of here. We're doing this, that, whatever. And then I'll usually open it up for just an open forum. Like, do you guys have any questions, comments, concerns? And the years that I have done that, I've found that the seasons and the parents were much more, I would say more positive, I guess it would be a better, I mean, for lack of a better term right now, more positive than negative, where in the seasons that I haven't, it's allowed things to fester. Yeah. And if those problems fester, you know, that's not only going to go to, you know, problems for me as a coach or the director later, but it's also for the kids because now mom and dad are pissed off and who's going to hear about it. Well, the kids are going to hear about it, and then the kids are going to pick up on it, and the kids are going to then take that into the locker room. And, oh, my dad says this, or my mom thinks this, or they're just going to say it as if it's their own. And, again, when you've got all these kids being hearing these different things, whether they're true or not, most are going to believe their parents. So I agree that it's definitely a, uh, you know, that's a key part of the culture too, especially with these younger ages. Um, and just all ages that we're working with, you know, youths and teenagers. Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the things that, one of the most impactful things anybody ever said to me was that, you know, I'm not raising kids to be their best friend. I'm raising kids to be good adults. Right. You know, and I think that uh, everything funnels up. Everything's a lesson at each level. And when you get to junior hockey, when you get to college, you know, those relationships really change. And, you know, that Nick Saban clip where he says that, he, you know, he, he's looking for, a couple things. He's looking for the right guys on the bus. He's looking for guys to find the right seats. And he's looking for the guys he wants to get off the bus. Hold you on. Know? You mean this clip here? Let's see if it plays. And the big part of being a team is you have to be able to communicate with other people. And you have to work with other people. And you can never have any team chemistry for this reason. Mediocre people don't like high achievers. And high achievers don't like mediocre people. So if everybody doesn't buy into the same principles and values of the organization and the same high standard, you're never going to be successful. Just like our spring practice right now. You know what my goal with spring practice is? Get the right guys on the bus, get them in the right seats, and get the wrong guys off the bus. So one of these days, you're going to be working in an organization, and somebody's going to try to do that to you. So which one of those people do you want to be? Do you want to be somebody they're trying to get off the bus because you're satisfied with mediocre performance? Because you can never have any team chemistry in your organization if everybody's not committed to the same standard and the same things. You know, when I worked for Bill Belichick, we had one sign in the building. It was, do your job. And I, you know, you go in all these places and you, know, you see all these things one sign do your job yeah that 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 information that he's relaying uh it's a tough world you know and and the more you uh you have to be part of that that team and part of the culture otherwise you're not going to have a seat on the bus 
And I think that uh, kids have to start to realize that as they start to get older. And then, you know, it starts around U14, then U16, then U18. You know, those, it, it, get, the, it starts to, cr- you know, crest towards the top of the pyramid. And yep. those are good lessons. And you have to learn those lessons if you want to get to that next level. I mean, but not only in hockey, but also in life in general. I mean, it, it, I don't want to work with people that are going to be, you know, that are not high achievers. I mean, I don't, I, if they're going to be negative the whole time, what's, you know, you know, granted, I'm one of the biggest pessimists in the world, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure that someone's like, hey, Trevor, that's you. you dog. But, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, I think that, you know, brings us to our, our interview subjects. I think we have two great interview subjects. This week, we have um, Carson Gates. He's a current sophomore at Chatham University, and he can speak to that player experience and his experience within the game as a current player playing at the college level, having played for five different junior teams in his career. And then we have Jim Masso, the newly hired head coach at Concordia, Wisconsin, and the type of culture that he's trying to bring to his new program and some of the ideas that he's taken with him from junior hockey college hockey and now he's bringing it to his own program as the new head coach great well uh welcome to the the podcast carson this is carson gates he's currently a sophomore at chatham university carson had the opportunity to play for the new england wolves and also team maryland before coming to chatham university welcome to the podcast carson hey thanks for having me guys i'm uh, really happy to be here well i thought that carson you'd be a great guest to talk a little bit about our topic of the week. Uh, we're talking about team culture within your locker room. And, uh, you know, you had an opportunity where you played for a number of different junior teams. You got to experience different uh, parts of the country, different leagues. And now you've made it, uh, your way onto a college roster. So tell me a little bit about some of those good and some of those bad experiences with team culture. So, I mean, I did five years of junior hockey, which, you know, from being around it, you kind of get a little bit of everything. Um, you know, I met some really great guys, but at the end of the day, a lot of, you know, the junior hockey mindset is get to college, do what I can to get there. Um, and then I didn't realize once I got to college, the camaraderie, at least that I've experienced is second to none. And kind of one of the only reasons I'm still playing now is because of the great group of guys we have here. And it really just goes to show how much being a good person is, uh, to the overall team, not only like having that good culture, but having great guys around makes guys want to go to the rink being in college. You know, you don't have any free time. You're at the rink all day, go to class, go to bed. And it's the same thing. But when you have that good culture and good guys all day, that really just elevates everyone performance on the ice in the classroom and just being a better person. That's interesting, Carson. Now, so you, you played five years of junior hockey. Uh, what was that transition like from being a, uh, an older freshman in college mm-hmm. to now where you are, you know, kind of thinking about your long-term plans. You're a sophomore in college. Uh, you probably have a number of c- credits under your belt. Like, what is what is the, the, the change? What was the biggest change for you at, during that process? Um, kind of the biggest thing will be like, uh, it, a lot of it was just time management things is getting through college and realizing what I can and can't do is really preparing me for later in life when you know, I kind of want to get into sports media um, and I've been able to kind of balance kind of getting into that world with, um, you know, being a college athlete, taking classes every day and kind of just doing all that tied in together. It's it's really kind of showing what, what I can and can't do. And even like my time with the Wolves, it's we're 
on the ice twice a day in class in the gym. And I think that really helped me get an early start to what, you know, the college schedule will be like. Interesting. Interesting. Now you said, you know, um, you know, now that you're, you know, you're in college and you're invested in your, in your academics, uh, what is one piece of advice you could give to players as they're moving on that journey from junior hockey into college hockey and what kind of cultures should they look for uh, when they are introduced to a team or they or they become part of a team? Yeah. The, the biggest thing to look for is, well, to do especially is just to give it everything you have. Um, Cause when you get to college, like uh, not a lot, like I didn't even realize this is you're going to have five weeks of just captain skates. It's going to be you and the players. Um, and if you're either a commit or a walk on, you have to do everything you can every day to get better, but that also kind of proves to your teammates that you're bought in and they'll kind of, you know, respect you more as much work as you put in. And that's something I try to really tell the first years this year on campus and the freshmen is we have five weeks now together as a group of four coaches, give it everything you have, go to all the team events, all the workouts, all the skates. And, you know, you're not going to have any regrets later, What no matter how things go. And that's, that's kind of the biggest thing is doing that. And then for guys looking at schools, it's, you know, you want to go to a school with a great hockey team, but at the end of the day, you also want to go to the school because of the school and what it offers. You're at the rink, you know, for a small portion of your day and the rest of the day you're at school, you're in the library doing homework. If you're miserable at school, you're going to be miserable on the ice. And that's something a lot of, I think, college athletes look past is they're there to be hockey players in their mind, but there's so much more into your day that's going to kind of affect being on the ice more than, you know, you have to, you have to enjoy what you're doing. That's awesome, Carson. Um, if there's one thing, like one positive story and one negative story you can tell from your junior hockey experience. And, you know, if it can be kind of, if you can do our, your, your best to make it relative to the topic of culture. Um, yeah. And Maybe also make it a little anonymous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anonymity would be good. But if you could tell one negative story that you experienced that you would say, don't be a part of something like this or, or uh, yeah. look away from, you know, don't, you know, look away from something like this or like, or, or a positive, like this was a real good thing that really increased our culture in our locker room and made us successful. I think one of, one of the big successes was, um, you know, part of a team I was on where we really focused on our team interaction outside of the rink. We spent so much time together, you know, working out on the ice. So we dedicated like one day a week to just, it's boys night. We went and did something. We kind of alternated what we did, but we're always there as a team. And I think that was something that really elevated us as the season went on. You know, you get to the dog days of winter and it's just guys don't want to get up early for practice. And if we can find something in the week to, you know, give the guys look something forward to and get us all closer together. And it's nice to get to know guys outside of, you know, what hand they are and, you know, where they like to shoot the pocket. It's a lot of the deeper things that, that make teams good and kind of make teams better. And on, on the flip side of that, of, of kind of negative cultures, I've been on a couple teams kind of like earlier on, early on in my, my time where it was, you know, it's individuals first. It's not the team effort. And you kind of get guys that really think they're better than everyone else. And that drags everyone else down. You could have a great group of guys, but if you kind of get one bad apple in there and things just kind of start to spread from there, you might, you know, yeah, it just kind of gets worse and worse and worse as the season goes on. And, maybe lose a couple games and now everyone's out of it. No one's locked in anymore and kind of spreads. That's some great advice, Carson. I really appreciate, uh, you know, you coming on the podcast tonight, 
Um, you know, you have a ton of experience playing in multiple years of junior hockey, then now into college hockey. And on a personal note, I'm just really proud of how far you've come. And I'm really excited to see what the next couple of years of Chad and you is going to do for you and going to do for that program. So thanks very much for coming on. Trevor, do you have anything for Carson? Yeah, actually, I wanted to ask real quick. If you, uh, Carson, you've got any advice to any, not even players, but coaches about building a quality um, culture within their club, what would you say is, you know, any type of tip that you would have, you know, make sure to, you should be looking for this, this or that, just based on your experiences as uh, Coach Andrew over here said. The number one thing is accountability. Like, even looking at Chatham now, uh, a thing we did on Monday, we have a, a an app that we use for, you know, team activity where we have messages. Uh, one of our team rules is you have 12 hours to like a message or else there's a punishment. And normally, you know, it's the players will we'll miss one. And, you know, we got a, a little extra thing to do with the workout. Uh, this past week, someone on staff missed it. Um, oh, so the coaches skated at the end of practice. And, <laughs> you know, just really small things like that to show that, yes, there are coaches, but they, you know, listen and follow the same rules that we do really makes the players buy into everything that they tell us, like system stuff. Uh, rules we believe so much more because it affects us but also affects you know our coaches and that's something really important to us that's awesome no that's that's great accountability i don't know if, yeah. how much i'd want to skate so i'd have my phone blaring with notifications when i needed that yeah. on <laughs> yeah it just it, it makes us a little more worried when we miss one because we made them skate so <laughs> hopefully you know we just gotta be a little bit sharper now for the rest of the year absolutely well, yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks, Carson, for coming on, and uh, we we definitely appreciate it. And best of luck this season. Awesome, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, guys. Thanks, Carson. So, welcome to the podcast. This we have with us Jim Masso, the head coach at Concordia, Wisconsin. Congratulations on the new appointment, coach, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You know, our topic of the of the segment here is on building culture within your organization, and I've always admired from afar. You know, you're relationship with your players and the ability you have to build a good culture within your locker room. Uh, what are some of the important ingredients in your opinion on building a culture within an organization? Yeah. Um, I guess the first two that stand out uh, off the top of my head is, um, creating a structure, you know, I think, um, having, trying to have as much black and white as you can in terms of, setting the foundation of what your expectations are. Um, I think that's the first thing we try to do before we even get on the ice is lay the fundamentals of what we're looking for, you know, how we're going to operate day to day. Um, the, the team rules, you know, they apply to everyone that they're, it's not talent based, you know, like Corey Doney, one of the best kids I ever, I ever coached um, was late, was late to the bus for a game, like as a showcase game. And he didn't play that day, even though like, he was in the running for MVP of the league, right? So I think it's structure, um, team rules, lay them out there so the guys understand them and, and don't give gray areas of interpretation. Just try to, you know, you know, um, do things, do things the right way. Um, you know, I think it's also easier for the players to understand once they're just black and white. Like, I don't think kids these days are really afraid of rules. They, they, they just want to know what the expectations are and, and what they can and can't do within the guidelines, you know, and the other part of that is, you know, I try to leave as much 
room for creativity and them to have fun and, and be their own person within, within the system too. So it doesn't feel like they're handcuffed. Um, and then the second point I'll go back to is, is creating an environment. You know, I, I believe like hockey is supposed to be fun. Um, everyone signs up to play because they want to have fun and, you know, they all have goals that are, you know, hard to achieve. So there's always a level of, you have to, you have to do X, Y, and Z to get where you want to get to. But at the same time, you know, try to find a way where everyone is enjoying what we're doing. You know, it's, it is possible to work hard and enjoy it at the same time. Right. So I think uh, finding those balances within, within the way you operate um, were kind of important for me, especially, you know, taking over Vermont. And um, now that I'm taking over Concordia and it's a total rebuild, we have 25 freshmen this year. So it, it's, it's kind of, I'm, I'm going back to my roots of how we started with Vermont and, and apply that here. Um, and, you know, first thing is just lay the foundation of what to expect, how we're going to operate on a day to day. These are the lines you don't cross. These are the lines where you and you get to be yourself and, and have fun and enjoy the process. That's cool, Jimmy. You mentioned, you know, you said expectations and then fun. So combining the two and finding the right mix. Um, do you find yeah. that there's any difference between a junior athlete, a junior hockey player or a youth hockey player compared to a you know, college athlete, an NCAA athlete, more of a man. Is there, is there a difference in those expectations and fun or is it kind of a, just a, a maturing of the process? Um, I think, I think not much actually, you know, um, if I were to coach a peewee team versus junior team versus college team, I think some of the details of what I'm teaching may different, uh, may be different, but I think, um, you know, my approach to how I run a practice and how I communicate, I think are, are the same. I, I communicate directly. I, I have fun with the guys. Um, every once in a while, I'll jump in a drill and try to score on a goalie and, and you know, celebrate and, you know, to like, like to play a little bit with them. Um, you know, like my practices start with some, with start with a game, you know, whether it be a, a cross ice 3v3 or maybe a full ice 3v3, like, you know, in juniors now, there's a lot of overtime. Uh, that's three and three college, same way, overtime three and three. Um, I'll pay, play a power play game where the white team has seven minutes to score as many power play goals as they can. And then the blue team gets seven minutes of power, power play as many minutes as they can. And, you know, on one hand, it's, it's, you're starting off practice with a game. So guys are having fun. It, 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 becomes compete oriented, which sets the tone for practice. And on the other hand, I get to see guys in situations where when we get into an overtime or, you know, when I want to figure out who can play power play, they're, they're showing me those things too. Um, That's a great point, Jim. Like I, I think that a lot of coaches get so um, motivated on new drills or, or focused on what yeah. is the next big drill or what's a great drill, but putting players in, in conditions and environments and game scenarios that's the name of the game and making kids compete in different scenarios is really critical to not only setting up a practice, making sure they're coming onto the ice ready to compete, but also finishing that practice with some level of fun. Yeah, I think, um, no, I, I would say, especially looking back at my time in Vermont, cause I was there for six years, but, um, you know, I would, I would say our teams had a lot of success, um, you know, and I would attribute a lot of that to, not necessarily having the most talented players, but creating a day-to-day -day environment where guys are competing 
and guys, you know, every day they're trying to win. And it, it also creates an environment where guys just hate to lose, right? So, like, you know, those, those we'll, we'll have a couple different uh, games throughout practice um, where there's a winner and there's a clear loser. And the loser has to do, like, two or three minutes of skating. It's nothing that's going to really, really bag them to where they're not having fun anymore. But it, it, it sets the tone of we're com- playing for something. And the winner gets to kind of sit there and watch. And the loser has to go up and down a couple of times and, and feel like they lost, you know? Absolutely. And I think uh, you know, we've just created, we've created an environment where, where guys are no matter if it's a drill, like we'll do a three on two drill and, you know, the forwards have 10 minutes to score 10 goals and the D have 10 minutes to not give up 10 goals. Right. So I think just creating an environment where there's a competition in every way possible. Um, that's fun. That's fun. But they're also, doing things with an intent, with a purpose, and they care about the result of what's happening. That's great. Like making things accountable. That's definitely a, you know, a big word uh, that's commonly used by a lot of coaches. But really, how do you implement that in your practice? Uh, what does right. that accountability mean? And that's a great example you give. You know, one of the things I was always most impressed with, with programs that you've run, is player retention. You know, like, yeah, if you can get on the road and you can recruit, you know, that gets proven by the product you put on the ice day one. But what does the product look 365 days later? Do those players want right. to come back to you? And I think, you know, that comes down to a lot of culture. Do they, is, it a, is it an environment where they feel they can get better? They want to be a part of? They want to be part of your success? And you did a really good job of that. Uh, what, what would you attribute some of those, those, uh, those attributes for? Like why would kids come back to the Vermont Lumberjacks or UNE? Or why would they come and look Concordia, Wisconsin? Yeah, I would say a couple things. Um, it starts with recruiting, you know, and when I recruit, I speak to the whole family, not just the player. Um, and a lot of that is very honest conversation. And sometimes that looks like, hey, like you might not start in the lineup right now. Um, I see you as a role player. Um, I see you as a player where you're starting here. Your, your, um, your ice time might look like this, but... I am looking at these traits that you have that I can build into where you can, you can get to a role such as this. Right. And I, I kind of talk about that particular player. And, and I think um, I, we talked about setting expectations that that begins in the recruiting process. So they're not coming in and, and, you know, they're, there's 25 stalls, but there's 45 guys that show up. And next thing you know, like, you may not be on the team, right? Like, like you get there and some coaches promise that you're going to be the first line power play and you get there and half the team was promised first line power play. Right. So like, I, I think it starts with setting a set of expectation of, of how things are really going to be. So when they sign up for it and then they get the experience they signed up for, I think more often they're going to be happy with the result. Um, you know, and then, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, once you get there, it's about building a brotherhood. You know, I think we start with respect, right? So, like, you know, the first day of practice, we start, before we do any drills on the ice, we start with learning how to stand for the national anthem, right? And, and I know um, our teams have always done that specifically. Um, but for us, it's it's about teaching respect on day one and in the first drill, and it applies to, 
within the locker room on the ice, how we, how we treat other people. When we go into restaurants, are we, are we holding the doors for, you know, men and women that are, that are walking in and out rather, rather than crowding the lobby. I think um, we go out of the way to try to teach the respect and how we treat each other. And um, you know, guys, guys that aren't good teammates don't get to play, you know? And I, I think once you create a culture where if there's 25 players on the team and 23 of them are really, really good people. Um, the two guys that aren't good people either get in line and follow along and become part of the group or the group kind of just pushes them out or maybe they don't feel like it's the right fit for them and and they they end up leaving, you know? And, and every year, it, it, it's some years I've had the same exact team in the beginning of training camp to the end and some years it's had one or two guys choose to leave on their own because they weren't necessarily the right fit. Um, but I think once you get the, those pieces in place, it's kind of easier to, to maintain it uh, than, than to build it from scratch. Absolutely. Now, uh, you know, to kind of sum up uh, you know, our, our segment here, Jim, what is one piece of advice if you could give to a coach who's starting a program and wants to do it the right way? What is one yeah. piece of advice you could give to a coach? I would say bring guys in that you believe in and that believe in you and don't be afraid to let bad eggs leave, even if they may be the best player at times, you know, and I think, um, you know, especially when you're beginning, you know, just be honest, um, work hard and give extra effort to show that you care, you value them, you believe in them, and you're going to do everything you can to help them achieve their goals. You know, and I think I wasn't, a superstar recruiter. Like I just kind of, you know, just spoke to families like I cared. And I, I think I won a lot of recruiting battles based off that and, and guys got to me and then, you know, I cared about them as they played for me. Um, you know, and like I said, it's, you know, try to do your best to set expectations. You're going to get some things wrong, but if you're just, if you're trying hard and you're honest and you're upfront, I think that comes through and, and you can make mistakes along the way and the guys are going to f still follow you, you know? So that's great advice, Jim. Great, great stuff. Now, Trevor, do you have anything for Jim uh, in terms of culture and, and building a team culture? No, I mean, <clears throat> I think it's, first of all, it's a, it sounds like a really daunting task to come in. As you said, you got 25 new, uh, brand new freshmen. Yeah. Um, are they all, cause again, obviously with college hockey, are they, are we talking about, do you have any actually like true freshmen or are they all coming in as like 20 year olds? Yeah, they're all 20. They're all coming in at 21 years old. Um, yeah, they're, they're brand new to college hockey. Um, you know, I will say, you know, my first thing was just get on a zoom, get in front of them. And my first meeting, I had a list of expectations that I actually typed out and sent to them. I texted them what the dress code was going to be. And just like the, the black and white rules of, of uh, the team rules. And then like a four bullet point list of things that I care about when deciding who gets what ice time. Right. And for me, it's, it's something that everyone can do, right. It's not like, have sweet hands, score 40 goals. Like my expectations are um, one to battle every day. I want guys that win one-on-one -on -one puck battles Two, I want guys that understand 
my systems and, and, and how it works. Three is executing the system, you know, cause there's a difference between understanding it and then getting on the ice, not being able to do it. Oh, yeah. uh, and then four is we call it uh, bring the juice, right? It's, it's, you know, have an attitude that makes everyone around you better. And, like you know, and, and, um, and, and, and at the end of the first meeting, it's who here feels like they can accomplish those four things. And everyone, everyone says they, they feel they can do it. Right. So I, I think that's where we start. We kind of use that as the foundation and, you know, we're 10 days in and I feel like, I feel like the team's bought in, you know, and, and um, you know, obviously we have a long road to keep it. And we're a, a, a whole team of freshmen in a really hard college conference. And who knows how many games we're going to win this year. Um, so we'll see. We'll have to keep it on the tracks through through the ups and downs of the season. But I think, um, you know, my time with Vermont helped me figure out how to set that template with a new program. And, you know, I feel like uh, I feel like I have experience doing it before not not doing it for the first time. So that's kind of. The, the bread and butter of, of what we're up to right now. Well, awesome. Well, that's awesome, awesome Jim. I, I really thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, we really wish you a ton of success. We're proud of how far you've come from your days with the Hartford Wolfpack to now. Uh, so good, good <laughs> luck, get after it. And we know you're going to do great things. Appreciate it. Thanks guys. Thank you very much. Those are two great interviews with, with Carson and Jim. I think they both brought great perspectives on, uh, on their own per- personal experience within the game of hockey, Carson, you know, he's the, the definition of a good teammate, a kid who, um, um, you know, willing to accept different roles, willing to be part of a culture. And then Jim, you know, as a young head coach, who's had success, but he's also learned from other people and he's, and he's brought those into his new program. So it's a uh, great information for parents for sure. No, definitely. We, uh, we will definitely put their, uh, contact information there more or less their twitter handles are as well as emails in the uh show notes but uh i uh want to say definitely both thank you to carson and jim for uh taking their time out of their uh busy lives as it is being one being a student athlete and the other one uh getting ready for his first season with what i'm trying you know tw- what was it just 20 freshmen was that it was like 23 freshmen yeah it was a lot of freshmen yeah for uh for the very first season of NCAA division three hockey. That's uh <laughs> I wish him luck. I mean, that's uh I wish him both luck, but uh, especially uh, coach Jim there, because that's, that's a lot of freshmen to be uh, to take in. But you know what, as we talked about culture wise, I mean, he gets to now build a culture within that group for hopefully for most of them for the next four years. Absolutely. And then Absolutely. when he brings in more kids, like he's got a good, he's got a good chance to, and I, believe he will he's got a good base here for uh you know to build that uh culture so good luck to both of them this season and uh yeah thanks again guys definitely and now we'll uh we'll wrap up our show here with uh the final segment uh this week we've got the uh our five myths um and uh this week's uh, title is basically five myths of junior hockey programs. All right. No, myth number one, and this is honor in honor of the Worcester situation. Uh, you guys say Worcester out, out in the Midwest. We say Worcester out here in Massachusetts. Uh, well, I'm probably saying it wrong in general because I just say everything wrong no matter where I live. So, <laughs> Yeah, and I'm from New Jersey originally, so it would be something totally, totally different completely. But the, five, the first myth is that junior hockey is a cash machine. 
uh, I can speak from personal experience, having run and operated a junior hockey program, is that the majority of funds brought in are, are put back into the players with ice rental costs, with referees, with, with um, buses, with travel, uh, with uniforms, with equipment. It's mostly invested in players. And people always say, like, oh, this is a cash grab or this is a cash grab. If most of the money is invested right back into the players, who's grabbing the cash? Right. Now, I think what someone will probably play, and here I am playing devil's advocate, someone might come back and say, but hey, Andrew, you're also listed as a coach. So are you are you getting paid a nice huge six figure, uh, which I know is not the case. Not the case. Not the case. No, but I mean, you also have to pay for your own time too. For sure. And it, it is my, it's my job. It's my career. And I mean, am I working a 40 hour week work week? Absolutely not. I'm working far north of that. You know, when it comes to player recruitment, a retention with our operations, with actual coaching. Um, there's a lot of time invested in these kids. And if you do it right, it can be incredibly fun, but it's not something that you certainly get rich overnight. There's a lot easier ways to make money for sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. All those sleepless nights. I can only <laughs> imagine. Uh, that brings us to uh, number two, which is uh, another sort of myth of junior hockey programs is you need junior hockey to play college hockey. Um, you know, for me, I think, and again, it depends on where you're looking. We're talking about juniors. Um, if you're if you're going to be going like D1, NCAA, or even D3, for the most part, yeah, you're going to be coming straight from a junior program. Um, very few, if any, don't go from a junior program. But that being said, for those listeners that are out there that are still playing high school or they're playing AA right now, um, you know, you can go if you're a senior ne- this year and you graduate this year. Nobody says you have to play juniors in order to play for a quality ACHA Division One or Division Three team. And I'm going to be honest. I mean, okay, so I played ACHA. Well, I dressed for ACHA two games. Um, not so much played, but uh, the quality that I've seen at the ACHA club Division One level, some of those teams can flat out play. I mean, these are kids that probably for grades, um, some of them, not all of them. I don't want to insinuate that it's the case, but for some, I'm sure that it's grades, uh, money, but some of these kids can, I mean, teams can really play and probably give some of these, not even probably, definitely give some D3 teams a run for their money or even give, you know, clean their clocks. Yeah, I would say that I, I agree with you. And I think that kids really need to take a look in the mirror about what their long-term ambitions are. And you should really choose the school uh, for what your long-term ambitions are. Like you, you shouldn't, we have so many kids who we recruit and they're like, I just want to go to school to play hockey. And that's like, there is a life after hockey. You have to find out what your major, what you want to major in, what you want to have a career in. Uh, and a lot of those kids, you can, you know, go to the high school level, right to, into ACHA hockey. And I would say that when you make a college decision, when it comes to hockey, um, there's a very big gap in what the ACHA experience can be. Some of those experiences, like when you look at the University of Kentucky or Lindenwood over the last couple of years, that yeah. is run like a that is run like a Division One program. They have fans. Um, you know, it, it's a first class organization. It's a first class experience. Then other some program other other programs are basically intramural or JV programs. Um, so there's a very big gap in what the ACAJ experience can look like. But if you're a player who wants to go right from college or right from high school hockey and you're committed to your academics on a different level, um, you know, it, it might be a good idea to explore some of those ACHA options for sure. 
Right. I mean, uh, one of the sayings, I forgot where I was at. I think I, think I was actually at uh, the old, uh, was it Five Hole Showcase out in Indiana uh, that they used to run. And I don't know why I was up on a panel. I think I was just sitting there holding the wall up, but I was part of the panel. And they, <laughs> you know, I, I forgot. I think it actually was uh, Bill out in uh, Santa Boni said, you know, basically it's just a, it's a, ra- it's not a, not a race, but it's basically all roads lead to men's league. You know, it's just who can get there last, essentially. So, you know, and as we talked about that pyramid, as you go up uh, levels, it gets, the game gets faster. It gets more and more tighter. I mean, it's so much more difficult. So at the end of the day, when you're going to college, I, I 100% agree that you need to, you know, okay, you want to go for hockey, but make sure you're looking at, the school aspect of it too, because at the end of the Definitely. day, you're a student athlete. You're not getting, you know, you're, you're they're not paying you thousands of dollars to go to play hockey at the university of wherever. No, that's professional hockey. This is school. Now I'm sure you could get now with all those national whatever uh, contracts and stuff that they got going on out there. But uh, yeah, at the end of the day, it's your student athlete, and student is what comes first in that whole thing. So absolutely. That brings us to myth number three, uh, and you you hit the nail on the head in the previous segment. You said uh, players are like professionals, and that's that's the myth. Players are are not like professionals at, at the junior hockey level. Um, there is so much more you have to learn at the junior level if you want to get to college hockey, like NCAA hockey, that uh, the professionals don't have to learn. Professionals already have a well-rounded tool set. They also have uh, you know they're also you know they're mature players, whereas we're usually getting a kid out of high school or out of triple A and you know, he's coming from a youth hockey experience and he's got to learn how to, you know, different penalty kill systems. He's got a different power play systems. He's got to learn how to play and compete for pucks every day. And he's got to learn a hard practice regimen. He's got to get stronger. He's probably going to grow two or three inches in that, you know, 17 to 20 year old range. So players are not like professionals. Uh, there's more they have to develop in the, that three or four year window than a professional would ever have to develop. Yeah, that's, I don't even, again, I mean, it's it's awesome to see the, that transpire over the years and see it the, just from, you know, the whole thing from point A to, you know, to the end, to the finish line. So, I mean, I've seen a lot of, I know, buddies, a lot of other kids that I've recruited or talked to and seen, you know, go from that first day of junior hockey to the end. And it, it's amazing the transformation that they make. Absolutely. Uh, let's see here. Uh, so my last one here is uh, that uh, junior hockey is for everyone. Um, now, hockey is for everyone. I'll put that out there. Junior hockey, though, is not for everyone. We're talking about, you know, a lot of different variables. You know, some kids, you'll have to move away from home. And there are kids out there that get homesick. There are also kids out there that... Um, you know, the level of play just is too much for you. Um, and if you're one of those kids that are like, hey, just come out, play for us this weekend or something like that. And you're really not, again, you're not getting a lot of ice time and you're just one of those, like hockey, junior hockey's not for you. I think it's it's tough because, uh, I mean, we both know. Uh, we were 18, 19, 20. I mean, whenever your career ended, my career, you know, my career ended. When I was in play, again, I'm an ECHA Division Two. wasn't that high. It wasn't nothing, nothing to brag about. But like I knew after about, I don't know, first few games, I'm like, you know what? I'm just, this is it for me. Like I'm, 
and I'm using college obviously as an example, but I knew right then and there, like, okay, this is it. This is, you know, I did the best, you know, I went as high as I could. Um, this just isn't for me. Um, you know, so as a junior player, some of you, some guys will find out if they do jump in like, Oh man, I'm, I'm getting healthy scratched every game. And especially if you're paying to play and you're not playing, you know, that it might be time to look at that college course, like that, not the courses, but the route of going to college. So I think at that 18 coming up on your towards the end of graduation, um, you should really kind of have an honest self-assessment of where you're at as a player and where you're at, again, as a student, where you're at in your life and what really makes sense for you short-term and long-term. And again, I know it's tough to give up on that dream. Everybody's got it, but you know, at some point, again, as I just said, you know, it's, uh, you know, all roads lead to men's league. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I, I think that uh, there's a couple things I could add to that. Um, number one is if you do want to pursue that, you know, you don't have to always be the superstar. And and finding a role on that team, that's the most important thing. And, you know, um, that may mean you have to change your game a little bit. You may, you know, you may have been the superstar scorer in high school. Maybe you got to find that you need to be more of a checker and a good defensive player. And you can change your game, be part of the team. And you have to be willing to accept that responsibility, accept that new um, new change of, of, uh, of your role. Um, and we've seen a lot of kids that have come into our program, accepted those new roles, and then they found a way into college hockey. And those relationships, I know that, in, you know, in my hockey time, whether it's playing youth hockey or junior hockey or college hockey, those relationships I made have opened other doors further down the road, uh, whether it be job opportunities or things like that. Like you know, they, they opened up, they were well worth it in, in the long run to, continue to play and be part of those teams now on the other end of that you know and i'll use that 2018-19 ehlp championship year we had six kids quit that year um and wow. i think a lot of them were for the exact reasons you're talking about uh you know we had one kid who kept taking his equipment home the first couple of weeks and he would go play sunday night men's league up in berlin new hampshire and i said to him like what are you doing like what are you taking your equipment up there and he's like well i want to play with my friends i said and eventually i said Maybe that's just where you should continue to play. Right, right. That's that's where you, if you want to play with your friends, go play with your friends. And then we had a kid at the end of the year who um who just kept every every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, he was sick for like three weeks in a row. <laughs> and like he just didn't want to go to practice. He wanted to play in the games and didn't want to go to practice. And I said, I'm not gonna play you in the games if you don't go to practice. Right. And he oh, was absolutely. out the door out the door within a couple of days. So <laughs> Uh, you know, like that, but that's a realization he made in his head that this just isn't for me. I don't want to practice and that's okay too. You know, we found, I'm right. sure he's got a job now and doing just fine. No, yeah, you can will. play men's league every night of the week that you want. Hell, you could probably even play two games, three games, depending on your fitness level. Me, I'd probably die after the first game of one week, but, <laughs> but no, definitely. No, that's. Now the last one we're going to talk about is, is leagues. And you know, a lot of guys always, um, they put a lot of stuff in, in the leagues. Uh, you know, they, the league matters really hugely to them, you know? Um, and, you know, we get this experience in the EHL a lot because a lot of kids will lose, will lose a kid to, you know, the, the Northern Ontario junior hockey league or the OJ. Um, even though we put more kids in the college in those leagues, they're defined up in Canada as tier two pay to play. 
Uh, and whereas, you know, up until we left USA Hockey this past year, uh, we were defined as tier three. But we're putting more kids into college than those those leagues. Right. Um, so it's always like you get these advisors say, oh, my kid wants the tier two experience. He's a tier two player. But if, it, if the pathway doesn't lead to the, the end, end goal, if you're getting to college hockey, then what are we talking about here? Like, what is <laughs> what are we talking about? It's like buying a really fancy car that just sits in your driveway. Right. Like it doesn't matter. You got to get, you got to get from point A to point B. So um, that's, uh, that would say like people who put these over, over emphasis on the alphabet soup that is junior hockey, go to a place that can develop you and get you to your long-term goal. That'd be my advice. Oh, absolutely. I, again, I've, I mean, you've been, you've been in the showcases well more than I have. And, you know, when you show up and you're repping a NA3 team or a USPHL, you know, premier team and the kids every single one of them oh i want to go to the na or i want to go to the null you know i want to play i'm going to do this i'm like oh are you because would you rather be you know don't get me wrong i mean would you rather be playing for a good tier three club and be getting quality ice time than sitting in a or not even playing being scratched as in a tier two league somewhere and again, most of those kids anyways, they get funneled down as it is. But yeah, I mean, you hear it all the time. And again, I think it comes back to that honest self-assessment of where am I going to really play? Where am I going to get the most out of it? Um, and again, I, I've always told people when I've had parents ask me, even kids like, hey, you know, hey, coach, what do you know about this team? Or, you know, this, this, I get this email and part of me is like, well, yeah, every, everybody that they found uh, that on that email list has got that email, but I go, I'm still getting those emails to come try out. And I'm 25 at the time. But, um, <laughs> well, I think actually, just so you know, I think Tim, I coach with Tim Coons and he is an NHL draft pick with the Carolina Hurricanes. He was on, on Boston College's 2008 national championship team. And last year, he got an email to go to a tryout camp for the Charlotte Rush, I think. But <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs> so, I mean, they, they're out there. Right. So it's it, it, it basically it's it's not always the best league. It's it's also the best program for you because there's a Definitely. lot of again there's good leagues out there and again there's but if the team's not moving and they're not advancing the players if they're not you know you're not getting as much ice as you possibly can in the training and all that stuff because let's be let's be honest there are some teams out there leagues that are allowing teams to just kind of do whatever they want um, and you know you might be getting for the same price something different in league a than you would be in league B or within league a you'll be getting something different than you would on team one to team two. So I've always told players, Hey, if you just do your research on the, on the team you are looking at, definitely make sure it's somebody that's moving players up. And again, we both know you might not be a player that moves up, but make sure you're doing your research. Are they advancing kids to colleges? Are the coaches, if they're not, are the coaches at least doing everything they can calling these other colleges saying, Hey, I've got a kid here who, you know what? Yeah. When you go on point streak or you go on wherever he's not, you know, elite prospects, he's not a point per game player, but I guarantee you when the game's on the line, he's the kid that you want on the ice. That's the type of stuff you want to be going for. And again, the, the, it's the whole tearing and the, Oh, we're, we're junior B or junior C or junior F that are tier two, tier two and a half. Like that's just, that's for another day. But, Again, I Absolutely. Agree. I agree. The, the, the program matters more than anything else. 
right. the program and what you're getting out of that program, that experience, where it can get you in the long run. That is the, that is everything for sure. So, well, uh, that uh, wraps up episode number two of the uh, Hockey Toolkit. Uh, for those of you at home, uh, thank you for listening. Please definitely uh, like, hit that like, subscribe button, whatever all those cool YouTubers are saying. Um, but, yeah, definitely if you uh, send us any feedback, we would greatly appreciate it. And uh, try and uh, – if there's any topics you'd like to hear from us, we would be more than happy to uh, dive into. But, uh yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, I'm Trevor Carlo. I'm Andrew Trimble. Thanks. You guys have a good one.